This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My title for this morning's first lecture is Done in the Body, the Eternal Meaning of Our Present Life. The phrase done in the body is from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians uh, in a passage that I'll uh, spend some time on momentarily. The New Testament and Catholic teaching are clear that when the course of our earthly life comes to its end, we must appear before Jesus Christ. We must come before Jesus And God will make a decision about us which Jesus will carry out, or Jesus will make God's judgment upon us. And in this judgment, we will have to give an account of our lives. The New Testament is remarkably consistent that this judgment will be based on what we have done. Um, I'm a convert to Catholicism. I was Lutheran before. Um, I've been Catholic for a long time, but um, uh, it took me a while to sort of figure this out. That <clears throat> actually, if you read the New Testament, it doesn't say that we'll be, uh, the divine decision about us will be based on what we believe. It's, a, it's repeatedly consistent that we'll be, it will be based on what we've done. It will be based on our works. It's for these that we must account. Our final destiny, our eternal life, or eternal death, our eternal salvation, or eternal damnation will depend on whether what we have done is pleasing to God. And it will need to be pleasing to God, not in some general sense of God, but to Christ our God, as our Orthodox brothers and sisters say in their liturgy, to Christ our God, that is, to Jesus. He will decide what is to become of us. He will decide what our eternity will be based on how we have lived in this world and whether it pleases him. So we turn to the passage from St. Paul. This is 2 Corinthians 5, the paragraph beginning around verse 6. While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. I'll come back to that line this afternoon. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And here's the crucial line. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. We rightly live our present life then, St. Paul goes on to say in the next verse, 5.11, we rightly live our present life in the fear of the Lord. Not terror, not, not cringing fear, but with a solemn respect for our situation that we must appear before him and render an account of our lives, of what we have done in the body. As we all know, in one of the perhaps best-known passages of the New Testament for Christians, the Lord himself teaches that we will be judged by what we Catholics call the corporal works of mercy. 
in Matthew 25, the famous, well-known, it's a little odd to call a passage in the Bible famous, but the well-known passage on the sheep and the goats, right, where Jesus is very clear that our final destiny will be determined by the mercy we have shown or not shown in our bodies to the bodies of others. So what does the Lord say in Matthew 25? Is it that separates the sheep from the goats? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me, which is to say you sheltered the homeless. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. So there we have six of the seven corporal works of mercy that the Lord instructs us will be the criteria by which we will be judged when we appear before him. The only one that's missing uh, in that list is burying the dead. So doing these works in the body here and now for the least of these, Jesus tells us, we do them for him. The dative in the gospel text can be rendered both to and for, right? It's often put this way, insofar as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, and that's right, but you also did it for me. You did it out of love for me. You did it so as to please me. And not doing these things, not doing these good works for the bodies of others, feeding and clothing and sheltering them, we do not do them for him. Now, of course, the act by which we do these good deeds in the body, these good works, can only can, can pass in a moment. It can, it can be fleeting. It can, it can take just a second, and it may seem insignificant. But strikingly, the consequences of our momentary act in the body are eternal. Eternal life or eternal punishment. And the parable of the sheep and the goats is all too explicit about that alternative. What you have done in the body has eternal consequences. Its weight, as Father Jonah mentioned last night from another passage of the New Testament, its weight is eternal, even if it may seem to us like a mere momentary event. So it's quite clear, as I mentioned a minute ago, that in the end, God's decision about us, carried out by Jesus, will depend not on what we believe, but on what we've done, on whether we've shown mercy to those who needed mercy, especially whose bodies needed mercy. The fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Not everyone who says to me, the Lord tells us later in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses I am the Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the bottom line here, I think, is that our present life is short and fleeting. 
and may seem to us to be filled with largely insignificant, or at least not eternally significant, events and actions. We get up reluctantly, we miss lauds, we take a shower, the water's cold, we go to breakfast, we don't have the soy milk that we like, and so it goes. And yet in those moments of seemingly trivial actions and passions, doings and undergoings, we decide our destiny. In God's eyes, the small events of our life have decisive, in fact, eternal significance. Life is short, eternity is long, the saying goes. And what the length of eternity will be for us, what all of eternity will be for us, depends on how we live this short life. Now, we human beings are incredibly inventive at finding ways to divert our attention from the reality of our situation. Incredibly, we're very inventive at finding ways not to fear the Lord, not to live in a solemn recognition of the reality of our situation. We are amazingly good at contending ourselves with trivialities. A great 17th century theologian and philosopher, Blaise Pascal, is, is particularly sharp on this point, uh, on, on the pervasiveness of diversion, as he calls it, um, the way in which um, a, noble, a French nobleman of his time will hunt for a rabbit, uh, you know, all day um, that he wouldn't accept as a gift if someone gave it to him. Uh, why? So as to divert his attention from the reality of his situation. And we all do this. But if we're wise, if we are attentive, we'll recognize the reality of our situation and we'll live in the fear of the Lord in solemn respect for the weight that God attaches to our present life. I want to pursue this thought then by attending a, a bit to a particular person and to her teaching, uh, namely the servant of God, Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day is uh, one of the few Catholics uh, nowadays who has street cred uh, among uh, the secular, in the secular world uh, because of her uh, social activism, because of her um, enormous um, uh, work uh, to care for the, uh, uh, the poor um, and, uh, and the homeless. Um, and... Uh, you know, those who admire Dorothy Day in our, in our, uh, in our secular world um, often um, would rather not remember that, that she was a Catholic or would, would view it as kind of a, um, uh, a personal quirk that has no, uh, no bearing on her, um, on her real contribution um, as founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, according, uh, together with her, her uh, friend and, and uh, co-worker Peter Marin. Um, and so forth. Uh, but in fact, as one can uh, very uh, quickly discern from reading her remarkable memoir, The Long Loneliness, which she wrote in her 50s, uh, uh, some 30 years before her death, um, this was for her 
had everything to do with being Catholic. Um, it came from her commitment to the poor, um, to which she devoted her life, to whom she devoted her life, came from a profound commitment to Christ uh, and, his, uh, and his church. Uh, she was heroically devoted to the corporal works of mercy, uh, of which we've just been speaking. The documents for her canonization, um, uh, for her cause, have just recently, in fact, been forwarded by the Archdiocese of New York uh, to the Congregation for Saints' Causes uh, in Rome. Uh, Dorothy Day offers us, I think, a remarkably clear testimony from an American Catholic to the eternal meaning of our present life. Uh, and what I'm going to talk about here really comes from just a couple of pages toward the end uh, of the long loneliness. Um, she makes two points, I think, of great uh, force and uh, significance um, uh, in a clear and, and rather, in fact, under, understated way. The first point, I'll, I'll give you the two points and then talk a bit about them. The first point is, as she puts it, God always gives us a chance to show our preference for him. God always gives us a chance to show our preference for him. And the second point, which I must say, I've read this book several times. Like many good things in life, I came to Dorothy Day fairly late, but um, I've read this book several times in recent years. The second point, if we do not learn to enjoy God now, we never will. God always gives us a chance to show our preference for him, and if we do not learn to enjoy God now, in this present life, in the body, we never will. So a fundamental question, of course, or something we have to be clear about, is why the corporal works of mercy uh, matter so much to God. Why do they matter so much that a brief act of ours can merit eternal glory because they're acts of love, acts rooted in our love for God in Jesus Christ, in the love that God has shown us in Jesus. In fact, it's that very love, the love of Jesus, which is the love with which we do the corporal works of mercy if we truly do them. Our acts our corporal works of mercy, our acts of love in the body, flow from charity, from what St. Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 13, the love that never ends. And it's just in that connection that Dorothy Day says, God always gives us a chance to show our preference for him. She continues, with Abraham, it was to sacrifice his only son. With me, it was to give up my married life with Forster. I'll explain that in a minute. We do these things not because it is our natural inclination, it is against our inclination, but because we wish to live in conformity with the will of God. So Dorothy Day was a convert to Catholicism. She was baptized in her youth uh, in a Protestant community. Um, and she was in a common law marriage in the late 20s and early 30s and uh, had, uh, became pregnant and had um, eventually had uh, her daughter, Tamar. And 
Um, while she was pregnant with Tamar, some stirrings that had, as she explains in, in a very clear way in The Long Loneliness, some stirrings toward Catholicism and toward a Catholic life that had been building over the years really gripped her. And she determined that her daughter would be baptized, um, even though she herself uh, was not, would be baptized a Catholic, even though she herself was not yet uh, a Catholic. Um, uh, and she then uh, was instructed and was received into the church, and her daughter uh, was baptized. Uh, Forrester, whose name I, I just uh, read from her text, um, her common-law husband refused to accept this. He refused both to uh, marry her in the church uh, and to, um, to live uh, as a Catholic. And so she was faced with an agonizing decision. She loved him, and he was the father of her child. But she knew that if he would not live in conformity with the will of God, as she had come to know it through the church, that she must end their relationship. She must leave him, which she did, and remained unmarried the rest of her life. So what she's presenting us, I think, with is a profound point about the weight of our present life. As she puts it, borrowing from many others, of course, the law of the supernatural life that is given to us in baptism is love, and she goes on to say, a love that demands renunciation, that demands the renunciation of real goods, of the love, the natural love that she had for the father of her child, that demands the renunciation of real goods for the sake of the infinite good, for the sake of Jesus. And she underlines this point again, that God always gives us a chance to show our love for him. And perhaps in every single life, but certainly in many lives, perhaps in every single life, there will be a moment of decision. There will be a moment on which the whole of our life in the body depends. Now, in the, her case, this moment of decision, as in the case of Abraham in Genesis 22, this moment of decision was achingly obvious, something that was against nature or against natural inclination was she was called upon to do, and she knew that her life hung on this, okay? that she would either live in conformity to the will of God, which meant renouncing the natural goods that she cared about, at least some of them, of course, um, or not. But it may be that the, the single moment of decision in our life is not so obvious to us. It may be the person who holds out his hand to us. And in a moment, we either help him or do not. But either way, whether it seems obvious to us at the time or whether it doesn't, it might be that the course of our earthly life is set by the deed we do or don't do the course, indeed, even of our eternity. St. Thomas Aquinas expresses a well-established Catholic idea when he says, 
that a single act of charity, a single act of faith working through love, merits eternal life. He's speaking actually in connection with the angels and how the angels can, in one act, either attain beatitude or, or perdition. Um, and he says that's also true of us, but our lives are in fact extended over time. So while a single act of charity uh, can merit eternal life, um, it doesn't, the story doesn't end there. So what he's saying is that a single act of charity done in the body is so pleasing to God that he will reward it with eternal life. A single act of the love of Jesus toward another human being is so pleasing to God that he will reward it with eternal life. Now, the angels only get one chance. Our life is extended, again, over time, so we get many chances as long as we live in the body. But here's where Dorothy Day's second point, I think, is really important. We shouldn't deceive ourselves. It's not as though we only had to undertake one act of charity and we could say, okay, I've done my act of charity, God's going to reward it with eternal life, and now I can get on with whatever it is I want to get on with. As long as we're in the body, we're offered the chance again and again to show our preference for God, in Dorothy Day's language, or not, to act with charity or to refuse charity. It's just in this connection that she says the following. If we love God with our whole hearts, how much heart do we have left? We must live this life now, she says. Death changes nothing. If we do not learn to enjoy God now, we never will. Death changes nothing. Or as it is often put, people die as they have lived. There are deathbed conversions, but for the great part, people die as they have lived. We cannot deceive ourselves into thinking that, well, we'll just live as we see fit, and then, you know, in the end, it'll all, you know, be good. We'll, we'll confess our sins at the last moment, and, um, and that will be fine. So the last point I want to touch on, then, is, um, is a question that arises from what I've been saying so far about the, the eternal weight of our present life, and indeed, even of the seemingly small acts of our, our present existence. One might get the impression, uh, if we weren't being perhaps as thoughtful about it as we should, um, that what these scripture passages and what the servant of God, Dorothy Day, teaches us suggests the following, that when we come before Christ's judgment, what we want to do, the position we want to be in, is that we should be able to say to Jesus, you're all my acts of charity, okay? I'll lay them out for you, and now you should reward them, right? I mean, as, as you, you promised, you know, we've done what's pleasing, we've done our acts of charity, um, so you should reward them accordingly. Um, or, not a demand exactly, but you, know, you promised to reward these, these, um, these works of charity that I've done. But that clearly is not going to work, right? I mean, that, that scenario is uh, terrifying. Who's going to stand before Jesus and say, look at all the righteous deeds that I have done? Um, he himself tells us, uh, Pharisee and the tax collector, right, in uh, Luke 18, 
Um, you know, the Pharisee says, I thank you, you know, for all the good deeds that you have helped me to, to do and uh, the good life you have helped me to lead that I'm not like this tax collector. What does a tax collector do? He stands before the Lord beating his breast and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And surely that's the posture that we must also have at the last moment. Eternal life is not given as a reward to those who say, look how righteous I am. How filled with charity are my deeds, even if, and this is important, even if they're right about what they say about their deeds, okay? Even if they're correct that they have done deeds of charity, still we cannot suppose that eternal life goes to those who say, look how righteous I am. It is given to those who are humble, as Jesus repeatedly teaches us, like the tax collector, not the Pharisee. It is given to those who are humble and recognize their own unworthiness of eternal life. So this raises the question, well, what then can we rely on? What can we place our trust in at this final moment, at the moment when we come before Jesus and have to give an account of our lives? What can we rely on for eternal life? St. Therese of Lisieux, in a famous passage from her act of oblation to merciful love, captures, I think, the approach we must all have to the Lord's judgment on our lives. St. Therese writes as follows, After earth's exile, I hope to go and enjoy you, speaking to God, of course, and specifically to Jesus, I hope to go and enjoy you in the fatherland, but I do not want to lay up merits for heaven. I want to work for your love alone. I want to work for your love alone. In the evening of this life, I shall appear before you with empty hands. For I do not ask you, Lord, to count my works. All our justice is blemished in your eyes, a reference to Isaiah 64. Not all our injustice, but all our justice is blemished in your eyes. I wish then... Recall last night's discussion. I wish then to be clothed in your own justice and to receive from you the eternal possession of yourself. This passage is included in the Catechism of the Catholic Church at number 2011. Write that down, number 2011. You're also compliant. I appreciate it. Um, where it concludes in a very striking way the discussion of merit. Okay. Um, the, the section on merit, the two pages uh, discussing the, the concept and the importance of merit in uh, the Catholic understanding of salvation and, and the attainment of eternal life. And yet it concludes in this very striking way with St. Therese saying, I don't want to lay up merits. Um, so what is, what's afoot here? What's going on? This passage is sometimes read by, uh, by some folks, particularly by Protestant readers of the Catechism, um, as though St. Therese were simply rejecting the idea of merit, okay? and in particular, as though she were rejecting the idea that eternal life is merited. Um, but that can't be right. Um, St. Therese, virgin and doctor of the church, was a pretty good Catholic, and, uh, and she knew that eternal life uh, is merited. So what could she mean when she says, I don't wish to weigh up, uh, lay up merits uh, for heaven? Um, she... She clearly couldn't mean that, that 
God is indifferent to the deeds we do in the body, that God is indifferent to what we have done uh, in the body. And that's essentially what the notion of merit is about, is that what we do in this life matters to God. It has weight with God. God is not indifferent to it. God is not going to, at the end, bestow on the creature the ultimate reward that he has to give, the eternal enjoyment of himself, as St. Therese says, without regard to the life that we have lived. God does not regard one deed done in the body, good or bad, as being as valuable or not as any other. So Therese certainly knew this. Her point, rather, is that true charity, the charity that makes deeds done in the body eternally valuable to God, is forgetful of itself. True charity is forgetful of itself. It is not interested in itself. It is interested and attentive to the Lord. As St. Therese says in what I think is the key line to understand this incredibly rich passage, I want to work for your love alone. The sole concern of charity, of true charity, St. Therese is saying, is to love the Lord, to grow in love for the Lord. Charity is focused on the Lord and what will please Him. Charity is not focused on me and whether I have laid up merits. True charity is truly humble and as a result would not think of saying to itself, let alone to the Lord at the final moment of our life, look how humble I am. It's a striking thing about humility. If you say you've got it, you don't. There's a kind of performative paradox about uh, humility. The humble person is precisely the one who would never say, not simply that they wouldn't utter the words, but from the heart would never say that they were humble, would never think of themselves as having been truly humble. So true charity wants only to love Jesus in the body. And at the end of this bodily life, it wants to love him most of all. In charity, we want only to give ourselves wholly to him in even the smallest things of this life, in even the smallest deeds done in the body. True charity wants to give ourselves wholly to him in the small moments of this present life and to entrust ourselves wholly to him and to his judgment on us at the last moment of this earthly life. Thanks. I think I did okay in uh, yeah, yeah. 45 minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Professor Marshall. Well, we will have time for questions. I wanted to ask a terrifying question about the use of the phrase bodily life in the body. Because mm-hmm. in the eternal life, whether in eternal punishment or um, eternal happiness, won't we also have a body after the last judgment? Yes, uh, and I'm actually going to talk about that uh, this afternoon. Okay, so um, uh, you know, this life, the next life. That was um, that was what um, what Father uh, Jonah asked me to talk about. Um, yeah, so I'm using the language. I'm following there the language of Saint Paul, who who speaks in a rather 
striking way. If you look at that passage in First Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians five, he speaks of being in the body and away from the body. Okay, um, and we're now we're in the body, and then we'll be away from the body. And it's better to be away from the body and with the Lord than to be in the body and away from the Lord. That seems odd if we believe in the resurrection of the body, right? Um, just the just the language is using the term body in a way that seems to confine it to our present life, right? Um, in that passage, okay? Um, so clearly, uh, Paul must be speaking there of in the body, not in the sense that the body is only confined to this present life, although if you just read that passage, you might think that, um, since St. Paul also teaches the resurrection of the body in a very vigorous sense, but rather that this present life is what he's talking about when he speaks of done in the body. Okay? So that the, the, the term body there is a way of speaking of our present life. It's not body, if you like, in its full extension or in the full uh, possible reference of the term, but body as it refers to this present life. Um, Paul's very, just to give you another case where Paul does the same thing, he will speak of the flesh, okay? And he'll make a contrast, just as he does here, between in the body, away from the body. He'll make a contrast quite sharply between in the flesh and in the spirit, okay? So Galatians 5, for example, the works of the flesh are plain, the works of the spirit. Okay, and that should be a capital S, by the way, although not all translations give it to you that way. The work's done in the Holy Spirit, right? Now, the, the term flesh there, of course, can just mean, you know, this stuff. So that might seem like Paul is a you know, really radically dualist anthropology when he says, you know, the works, you know, there's the flesh and then there's the spirit. But that's not the way he's using flesh. He's using flesh to mean ourselves insofar as we love the things of this world and not the things of the Lord. So the flesh is the whole self as it is in need of redemption, as it loves itself rather than the Lord. The spirit is the whole self as it is guided by the Holy Spirit and loves the Lord not itself in, in the end. Okay, so it's a, it's a, biblical scholars, you know, spend a lot of time on this. I mean, you know, sort of parsing out how um, you got to be careful, especially in reading Paul, about not taking his terminology in a global way every time you see it. Yeah? Uh, I guess it's a little off topic, but to the point of, like, flesh and spirit, so, like, in John 6, when he says, the flesh is of no avail, that's what he's meaning. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I failed to do what Father Jonah did uh, did so well. So the first question um, was about um, uh, whether when Paul says in the body, out of the body, that's consistent with his understanding of the eternal, uh, the bodily character of our eternal life. That's the first question. Second question is, in John 6, when um, the Lord says... Um, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. How should we understand uh, that? Um, 
that's a much debated point. Um, that's a controversial text. Um, John does use flesh and spirit. That's in a way that's quite similar to Paul. Um, it's not entirely clear whether, to me at least, whether one should take that passage in just that way. Although it might be, you might take it that way. Okay, so the short answer to your question might be, yes, take it that way, all right? Flesh means what's opposed to God. Spirit means what's oriented to God or with God. Um, but another way of taking it, and as I recall, St. Thomas uh, reads it this way, at least in one aspect of his interpretation of John 6, and he has a very rich line-by-line -line commentary on John 6, uh, on, on John, and of course, including John 6. The, the context of that passage is, however, this is why I think it's not always, not maybe the most helpful way to take it is the way that, that I just suggested you could take it. The context of this passage is the life-giving character of the flesh of Jesus. Okay? Um, and that's so emphatic in this text. I mean, it's the strongest Eucharistic text, in a way, in the New Testament. Okay? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. Okay? And St. Cyril of Alexandria and the sort of tradition that follows, that builds on him and, and, and others, makes such a point of this, that that's why the flesh of Jesus must be the flesh of God, as, as Father Jonah was talking about last night, because the flesh of Jesus gives us eternal life. It fills us with the life of God. So when suddenly Jesus then says toward the end of that discourse, well, the flesh profits not at all, as the King James Version says, it profiteth nothing, that just seems really jarring. And so Thomas's reading is, he's not saying, my flesh profits nothing. He's just told us how much his flesh profits. But what he's saying is, the flesh, in the sense of the self has turned away from God, will get you nowhere, okay? And his audience, which says, of course, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is a hard saying, is precisely not willing to, it's fleshly in that, that more narrow sense, turned away from God rather than being willing to accept what God wants to give, however shocking uh, it may be. That was another question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so my question is about uh, the time we die, so we have to live. Um, Say that again. The, the line uh, you said about mm. we die as we have lived. Oh, we die. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So mm -hmm. right. my question is, what does uh, I guess you got? What does death look like for someone who has lived in true charity versus someone who has lived a selfish life? Well, this is a very hard question. It's a hard question for me personally. I mean, I'm the only Christian in my family, and um, my father's 91 years old and um, not in great health and is um, not a believer and, in fact, rather, rather against um, the faith and has never quite understood why he, how he managed to raise his oldest child so that he became uh, a, an all-in Catholic. I mean, this, this is profoundly puzzling and somewhat disturbing to him. Um, so what should, what should I think about this? Um, well, the only thing I can say about it is, first of all, what 
sorry, I mean, there are a couple things that kind of come together here, so I'm, I'm trying to sort them out as I speak. We can't tell exactly what the moment, you know, from, the, from th this side of it, exactly what that moment will be. Um, as I mentioned last night in, in recalling Gaudium at Spes 22, every human being has the opportunity to, um, to enter into the Paschal Mystery in a saving way. Even though, for many human beings, it will be very hard for us from, to see how that's going to happen. Right? Those who've never heard the gospel, those who live in a culture where the gospel is not sort of something they can really take in, even if they may have heard of Jesus or something like that, like in you know, Saudi Arabia or something in a Muslim culture. I mean, how can we really say that the average person has rejected the gospel in a kind of definitive way? That would, that would be kind of hard saying. Um, maybe it is the case, but it'd be hard saying. Um, so every human being has the opportunity to enter into the Paschal Mystery. And that happens in, in a final way at this moment. Okay? So who knows but that in the moment of death, any human being might turn to the Lord with repentance. And that's certainly what I hope for, for the members of my family, my mother who is who has died, and my father, who is not long for this world, although exactly how long remains unclear. But that's what we hope for, and I think it's a, re it's a, it's a legitimate hope. It's a legitimate hope for a Catholic to have. Um, but I think Dorothy Day's point is simply, um, it's not a good idea to say, particularly for a Catholic to say, well, my life is kind of a mess, but I'm... I won't worry about it. I mean, I can always, you know, I can always convert at the last moment or I can always, con you know, confess my sins, that, you know, when the priest comes to give me viaticum uh, at the end and so I'll be good, okay? Um, the situation of someone who has, in Dorothy Day's phrase, not learned to love the Lord, to enjoy him now, the situation of that person at the last moment is perilous. And I've... I think what we you know, have to hope for is, is the mercy of God, but that's, that shouldn't be our guide to the way that we live in this world. I hope that at least touches on the question you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Please, go ahead. Thank you so much for your talk, Michael. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe say briefly how, and then you want to take language theory, you know, we're not supposed to lay up there. Right. How do the spiritual works of mercy kind of factor into Yeah, sure. Um, no, of course, the spiritual works of mercy, um, yeah, repeat the question. So how do the spiritual works of mercy factor in? Thank you. Um, because the, the New Testament emphasis is very strongly on the corporal works of mercy. Um, and again, the Lord, when he, when, where, do, you know, where do the classical corporal works of mercy, uh, you know, in, in Catholic, you know, catechetical, uh, you know, experience come from? Well, they come from this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, uh, so where do the spiritual works of mercy come from? Well, they're, they're sort of the, the interior side of, if you like, one way of looking at it is they're sort of the interior side of the, the, uh, the love that, that manifests itself also in the corporal works of mercy. So the spiritual works of mercy are simply ways of helping others draw closer to the Lord. So we do those things out of the same love for the Lord that we do the corporal works of mercy. So the root of everything 
you know, how do they factor in? The root of everything is charity. The root of everything is to love you, me to love you with the love of Jesus. What we can't do, and I think this may be the reason that this, you know, the Lord put so much emphasis on the corporate works of mercy, what we can't do is say, well, I did the spiritual works, so I'm good. Okay, the corporal works are not so, I, I, can, I did those, so I, you know, I'm okay that I didn't do the others. Yeah, that's not going to work, all right? Um, uh, we, have to, we have to see the two as profoundly uh, connected. And again, I think that, that charity or um, the love of God that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that's the connection uh, between the two. Um, one of the striking things, I mean, the, the spiritual works of mercy are, are to bring others closer to the Lord. Um, the corporal works of mercy, you know, again, there's a kind of immediacy about them. Someone needs your help, help them. You know? Um, there's an intersection. I know there's a lot of UD people here, um, so I, a half hour from where you all are located. So whenever I'm driving home from SMU to, um, to my home in Richardson, um, at the intersection of Lover's Lane and, um, and 75, I have to wait to get on the uh, expressway. Um, and uh, they're all, very frequently there, there are uh, men, I've never seen a woman, asking for money uh, at that corner. And there's a sign put up by the city of Highland Park where the median price of a house is $1 million. Um, there's a sign, uh, discourage panhandling, you know, um, and then something about a city code or something, you know. So what should I do when this guy holds out his hand to me? Um, should I say to myself, he just doesn't want to work. Um, he doesn't really need the money. Some of the guys who hold out their hands are incredibly, look, look incredibly bad. I mean, you know, they're, they're clearly suffering, but some of them, you know, backpacks and sneakers on. So what should I do? Um, should I say, well, you, you look all right. I'm not going to give you anything. Um, the Lord just says, give to those who ask of you. He doesn't say vet them first. Um, St. Teresa of Calcutta, different Teresa, says, um, you know, will you be taken advantage of when you do this? Absolutely. Do it anyway. So that, that's the thing about the corporal works of mercy. They're so immediate, you know. You, you can turn your heart in or you can turn it out. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, sure. Got Kyle. Um, so <clears throat> my question is what happens when we lose sight of Christ when we're doing these these good works and we, in, in a passive way, that we start doing these, these good works, start with good intentions with Christ, but then it ultimately in a passive way kind of turns towards yourself because you feel good doing this. Yeah. So how do you reconcile? Yeah. Um, yes, thank you, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to get this, okay? I mean, uh, right. Um, so the question is, um, how do we deal with the, the sort of reality, this is my way of putting it, the psychological reality, that we're not thinking of Christ when we do, say, corporal work of mercy. Um, and we may, in fact, do it because it feels good to us to do it. So, yeah, all right. Um, 
This is where um, a very standard piece of Thomistic and more broadly Catholic theology I think is very helpful, that grace is not simply an isolated act or the cause of an isolated act, but grace is a disposition, or habitus in, uh, in scholastic Latin, a disposition to act out of love, or charity flows from the habit of grace. So, of course, you, you, what you want is precisely to love the Lord in such a way that you don't have to think about it every time you do it, right? That your act can, be, can, can flow from love for the Lord even when you don't say, I'm now acting out of love for the Lord. Not that that's a bad thing, of course, but that, that you don't have to be thinking about that. Um, the second part of the question is a bit more subtle, right? Because, of course, it is rewarding to act out of love. It feels good. So why did Dorothy Day leave her, her common-law marriage and take her daughter, you know, um, uh, to live alone, even though it, it hurt at one level very, very deeply, because it felt good to live in conformity with the will of God. That felt even better than it felt bad to, you know, break with the natural love of her life. Um, but to do it because it feels good, rather than do it because it's the will of God for your life, that's where the difficulty comes in. And I grant, you know, I mean, psychologically speaking, that's a, that's a tough one, right? Because we will naturally say, oh, I like doing it this way. You know? And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with liking doing it this way, but it's a matter of what your primary aim is. Is it to please the Lord or is it to feel good? And that's, you know, I mean, conceptually, that's not a hard distinction to make. But obviously, in our daily lives, that's something that we, we need to struggle with. Yeah, in the back. Uh, yeah. know, Go ahead. Do we know how long the judgment lasts when a soul stands before God? Because I've heard it's instant. And then, like you were saying, St. Paul says, we all have to give an account. So it kind of sounds like there might be a little conversation um, the question is, how long does the judgment last, okay? Um, there's a widely read Catholic uh, dogmatic theologian of the early 20th century named, a German named Josef Pola, who actually came to the U.S. and taught at Catholic U when Catholic U was just founded. Uh, his dog, his, his um, dogmatics handbook um, Dogmatische Theologie or something like that, translated into English and gone through many, many editions. So Polo thinks you need an opinion on this, all right? And he says, it'll be over very quickly, all right? Um, but honestly, I don't know that, that this is a matter on which one needs an opinion. Now, may, you know, maybe others have other, other thoughts about this. But um, uh, the way we think about it, it obviously, it's going to take time, right? Because we have to give an account. We have to, we have, he's going to ask us some questions, and we're going to answer. It's going to be like going to confession, right? Um, I mean, that's sort of the, uh, the picture that we get. But, you know, we're talking about what is the case beyond this present life. Maybe only a moment beyond, but beyond this present life. So the categories of this present life and the temporal categories of this present life aren't going to apply in the same way at that moment. Just like when we talk about purgatory, okay? I mean... I've been reading Dante's uh, uh, Divine Comedy with students. I mean, you know, the Purgatorio, I mean, goodness gracious, I mean, it goes on forever and ever, and there's all this stuff that happens. 
but dogmatically, I mean, we're not committed to thinking that purgatory is actually taking up time. I mean, it, it, that's not the crucial uh, element of it. Uh, uh, Father John wants to add something. Correct me. Just yes. That, uh, in death, you leave the body, and time is the measurement of change with respect to physical things. So if you have no body, your relationship with time is radically different. There's still a measurement of change, but it isn't the measurement of change that obtains in this physical world. Thank you. That's helpful. There's an urgent question here, even though we're one minute from the end of the time. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, actually, behind you. Uh, I know you also had your hand up. But <laughs> this is a tough question. I don't think you have the definitive answer, but I'd be curious to hear your reflections. To what extent should we fight to institutionalize corporal acts of mercy? So is it enough to just give money to the person who accosts us when we're stopped at the light? Or does this sort of confer on us responsibility to fight for a social order that would better distribute income so that that person doesn't have to say, like, accosts us? Yeah. And how can we do that without slipping into, like, liberation theology? Yeah. Um, yeah, that is a, that is a complicated question. I, I think it, there are answers to it. So the question is, how, how much do we, do we need to institutionalize the corporal works of mercy? Okay. Um, and I have to say, I think here Dorothy Day is incredibly helpful. She institutionalized it. She founded a, a, a movement which was aimed precisely at giving shelter and food uh, and, and help to the, to the homeless, to the unemployed, or to those who labor endlessly for less than they need to survive. And she, and particularly Peter Marin, her, her co-founder, you know, co-worker, were very emphatic that government handouts are not what's needed here. That, in fact, in Peter Marin's view, this is against the dignity of the human person. Uh, he was very strong for the notion of, of, of worker farms. And there actually still are some Catholic worker farms in Pennsylvania, for example. Um, and so one might say, well, you know, what's that going to accomplish? Um, and, you know, Dorothy Day's answer is, we just do it. You know, again, sort of like Mother Teresa, we just do it. We do it because we, that will help some people. We, we just do what we can. Of course we fall on our face. Of course it's not sufficient. But we do what we can. That's what the Lord asks of us. Whether there needs to be a transition from that to, you know, a particular political platform and so forth is a much more complicated question. And I think that lines of connection become more tenuous there. In paying my taxes, am I doing corporal works of mercy? You know, in, in, in funding someone's Social Security, someone's going to be funding mine fairly soon. Um, in funding someone's Social Security, am I doing a corporate work? I mean, well, I don't know. But there's more to be said about that, obviously, as you say. We can, we can talk more. Yeah. Thank you.